Sooner or later, you can bet your life that every Jew in this building is going to say the same thing. He's a little too Jewish for my taste. <laughs> Shalom and welcome to the Two Jewish Radio Show with Rabbi Sam Kohan and Friends, a weekly serving of everything Jewish. We'll have a great hour together today of news, music, comedy, and conversation. Our guest this morning is Rabbi Matt Gewertz, recounting gripping experiences leading a solidarity mission to an attacked community in southern Israel. We'll also have a visit from our expert on the international Jewish scene, Tom Price. Please email your comments to us at 2JewishRadio18 at gmail.com or visit us on the web at 2JewishRadio.com. The opinions of the host and guests on 2Jewish are their own and not those of the radio station. 2Jewish is paid for by 2Jewish Radio programs and podcasts, Tucson, Arizona. And now, here's Rabbi Sam Kohan and 2Jewish. Shalom. I returned a week ago or so from Rabbinic Solidarity Mission to Israel. It was a powerful and valuable experience, if not exactly a pleasure trip. For context, I've been to Israel, oh, 17 or 18 times, led four congregational trips there, co-led an interfaith pilgrimage trip to Israel, lived in Jerusalem for a year, and spent a summer in the north of Israel long before that, and have found every Israeli experience I've ever had to be unique and typically quite wonderful. This was a different kind of journey, going to Israel during wartime to offer support and to see what I could learn that I didn't already know from obsessively following the news and talking to friends, colleagues, and professionals in Israel nearly every week since the October 7th atrocities took place. To begin with, this is the first time I've gone to Israel where I didn't anticipate it with a sense of great personal excitement. I knew beforehand being in Israel during wartime would be different. I was in Israel during some of the worst days of the Second Intifada. I can tell you it was rough back then. But at no point during that run of terrorist bombings and suicide-homicide attacks by Palestinians did it feel like a threat to Israel's very existence. This time, the perception is very much that what Hamas perpetrated October 7th, the worst massacre of Jews since the Holocaust, combined with torture, rape, and brutal mass kidnapping of hostages into the hellish tunnels of Gaza, made it explicit that Hamas must be destroyed or that it would remain an existential threat to Israel and its civilian population. In fact, the sense in Israel while I was there was very clearly that this was different. Different from the 1980s war in Lebanon, different from the several wars with Hezbollah in the north that saw rocket attacks as far as Haifa, different from the first or second intifadas, different even from the Yom Kippur War for those old enough to remember 1973. Those wars, and really you can't just call them conflicts, impacted Israel greatly, of course, but they had not changed the overall mentality of the nation as this horrific attack had. Israel, on October 6th, just before this atrocity was perpetrated by Hamas Palestinian terrorists, was a divided nation. The judicial coup the government of Bibi Netanyahu attempted led to massive protests for 10 months before, created a level of social disruption and tension that was nearly unprecedented in Israel. But when the awful events of October 7th exploded, all of that was essentially forgotten. 
The entire nation came together in unity with the knowledge of a common threat and the horrors of October 7th bringing people of very different political perspectives and different Jewish observance levels together. That unity has seen tremendous voluntarism across all aspects of Israeli society. That was evident throughout my time in Israel. The examples were legion. City people from Tel Aviv and Jerusalem taking buses down to the south of Israel every week to help harvest crops, replacing farm workers from Asia who returned home on October 8th and thereafter, replacing the many Palestinian Arab workers from Gaza who no longer are able or permitted to enter Israel for work. Fancy hotel chains like the Dan Group opened their doors free of charge to evacuated families from the south of Israel near Gaza and from the north of Israel near Lebanon without knowing whether the Israeli government would reimburse them ever for the rooms and food they were providing to so many Israelis. Individuals, families, non-governmental agencies of all kinds in Israel rushed forward to help the displaced Israelis, many of whom had to evacuate without supplies. They offered support services for the many traumatized victims. We visited an innovative center for PTSD treatment in Tel Aviv using giant decompression chambers to successfully treat the large number of soldiers and civilians trying to recover from the trauma of the terror attacks or from fighting in Gaza. So there is unity in Israel now. Now, no one expects that to continue much past the end of this war whenever that happens, but it is true for now. Notably, on this trip put together by the Central Conference of American Rabbis, I met with many progressive and left-wing Israelis. In the week I was in Israel, and I went there a couple of days early on my own, we traveled from Tel Aviv to Haifa to Jerusalem to Kibbutzim to small towns, well, all over. I never heard anyone express a strong desire for a ceasefire. These are the same Israelis who employed Palestinian workers, who drove Palestinians from Gaza to Israeli hospitals when they were ill, who had friends, they thought, in Gaza. Their trust in the goodwill of ordinary Palestinians, not Hamas, of course, but ordinary Palestinians, their compassion for the fate of the Gaza civilians has been not only undermined by the vicious atrocities of October 7th, it has essentially been destroyed. It will be a long time before Israelis, who have been attending funerals, memorials, and the hospital beds of their relatives and friends for four months now, can feel compassion or certainly trust for Palestinians. In addition, and this is incredibly important, the profound faith that nearly every Israeli feels for the military, the IDF, has been shaken. Look, trust in the government is never particularly strong in most countries, certainly not in a vibrant democracy like Israel. But in Israel, where nearly every non-ultra-Orthodox man serves in the Israel Defense Forces for almost three years, where most women do so as well, where reserve duty continues for an additional 15 and more years, a belief in the military and its effectiveness and good judgment, well, that's central. The fact that the IDF was unprepared for the severity of the horrifically brutal Hamas attack of October 7th, that the army took six to eight hours to reach the scene of the massacres, that in some cases it took 20 hours to relieve embattled and trapped civilians, well, 
That failure shocked all Israelis. While the IDF has conducted the Gaza campaign with remarkable effectiveness and taken serious losses, the Israeli public is still shaken. I was told by many people, this entire country has PTSD. That is not wrong. There are family members who know that there are relatives who have been held under Gaza in tunnels as prisoners of brutal Palestinian terrorists for 120 days now. There are Israeli families that don't feel they can ever return to their homes because they were locked in their safe rooms, terrified for 12 hours and more. There are families who have no homes to return to, whose neighbors and relatives were murdered brutally. And there are families whose husbands, sons, and fathers have died fighting in Gaza, whose daughters, mothers, or wives were murdered October 7th. It will be a long time indeed before these people recover. And yet, in many ways, Israeli life goes on. Cafes were busy when I was there. Stores are open. In wartime, businesses manage. Everybody knows that this war is necessary for Israel's survival. As I said from the pulpit of Congregation Beit Simcha a week or so ago, it seems bleak now, with peace and coexistence far away. But I also remember that for the first 30 years of Israel's existence, there was no more implacable foe of Israel than the nation of Egypt. From before the founding of the State of Israel through wars in 1948, 1956, 1967, and 1973, Egypt swore and tried to drive the Jews into the sea to annihilate the Zionist entity to create another holocaust. And yet, after all those years of warfare and overwhelming hatred, peace was eventually arranged at Camp David. And that peace has lasted for 45 years and counting. I do not believe that the result of the current Gaza war, the true end of these October 7th atrocities by the Palestinian terrorists, will prove to be a lasting peace with Palestinians or a demilitarized new Palestinian state that somehow is both democratic and coherent. But stranger, less probable things have happened right there in the Middle East. As Ben-Gurion famously said, To be a true Israeli, you must believe in miracles. Israel itself remains a modern democratic miracle. It is going through a very hard time indeed right now, but as nearly everyone in Israel said to me at the end of each meeting or talk, may we meet again here in Israel in better, happier times. And may those times come speedily and soon. For now, to play us in this Sunday morning, here's a song that's become a kind of theme for this period, ever since October 7th in Israel. It's a song I played back in December, but it was prevalent on the air during this trip just now. It was released last summer before the atrocities, but it's Yagel Oshri's song about overcoming depression. I promise, he says, good days are coming. Thank <laughs> you. 
להתמודד עם שינויים ההרגלים הישנים הנשמה במלחמה עם הקרמה עוד יבואו ימים טובים אני מבטיח עוד יבואו ימים טובים גם בשעות החשוכות של הלילה תמיד יהיה כוכב קטן שיעיר לך את עצמך, את הדרך הביתה. תמיד זה הכי חשוך לפני הזריחה. מיליון רכבות דוהרות עד אוסטרליה. מחפש רחוק את מה שנמצא לך מתחת לאף. כל מכשול זה מדליה. קם ונופל, אבל בדרך שלך. להתמודד עם הפחדים, לקפוץ למים עמוקים, לשחות עד הסוף, להגיע לחוף עד הלילה. להאזין גם לשירים, כי זמרים הם הרופאים הכי טובים שיש למדע להציע. עוד יבואו ימים טובים, אני מבטיח. עוד יבואו ימים טובים. גם בשעות החשוכות תמיד יהיה כוכב קטן שיעיר לך את עצמך, את הדרך הביתה. תמיד זה הכי חשוך לפני הזריחה. מיליון רכבות דוהרות עד אוסטרליה. מחפש רחוק את מה שנמצא לך מתחת לאף. כל מכשול זה מדליה. קם ונופל אבל בדרך שלך. That was Yagel Oshri's excellent song about coming back from depression. Our guest this morning is Rabbi Matt Gewertz, recounting his extraordinary experience leading a solidarity mission to an attacked community in southern Israel. Hear his remarkable stories when we come back in a moment, right here on Two Jewish. The stories we share last a lifetime and are passed down from generation to generation, known for our compassionate commitment to the families we serve. Evergreen Mortuary and Cemetery has faithfully served the Tucson community and the Jewish community for over 100 years. We help thousands of families plan and carry out celebrations of loved ones in unique and special ways and assist them in sharing those lifetimes of stories meaningfully. The most beautiful and tranquil final resting place in all of Southern Arizona, Evergreen's tall pines shade peaceful grassy fields. You can count on Evergreen for superior service and the highest degree of integrity. Our informative, well-trained staff is here to assist you with a full range of on-site services. Call Evergreen, 520-888-7470, 520-888-7470. 
While we serve the whole community, our experience conducting Jewish funerals, Reform, Conservative, and Orthodox, is second to none. We have sections dedicated to all religious faiths, can help you arrange for your future needs or your immediate ones. Whether you choose to hold a traditional funeral service or a completely individualized ceremony, either in person or online or both, Our goal is to help you create a meaningful, personalized service based upon your unique needs in a place of reflection, tradition, and serenity. Evergreen Mortuary and Cemetery offers the best to the community and to you. Call 520-888-7470. To speak to a family advisor at Evergreen, call 520-888-7470. We are delighted to welcome the two Jewish our guests this morning. Rabbi Matt Mertz is a highly prominent congregational rabbi who took a solidarity mission recently with his congregation and had some extraordinary experiences. Uh, Matt's a friend. We're delighted to welcome him back. Good morning and welcome. It's good to be here. Matt, um, tell us the origin of the solidarity mission and uh, just a little bit of an introduction to your experiences there. So I am an avid Zionist and uh, have been since uh, as long as I could remember. So as soon as the war broke out, I knew I wanted to be here. And uh, about 10 days after the war uh, started, uh, about 10 rabbis and I came from New Jersey. Things were utterly uh, a mess here at that point. Just chaotic, right? Chaotic, chaotic and, and traumatic, and, and it still is. And uh, came back again with my wife and kids at my kids' behest saying, wow. Dad, you talk so much about Israel, why aren't you taking us? So I couldn't answer that question with anything but let's go. And then it was time for me to bring people from the congregation. And uh, I didn't know who would come. And to my utter, uh, I wouldn't call it delight, but to my utter sense of fulfillment and meaning, 35 people signed up to come with me. So 36 of us went. That's incredible, actually. And they came knowing this was not a pleasure trip. Oh, this was the opposite of pleasure. In fact, any time we'd smile or laugh about something, we felt guilty about it. And uh, no, but but it was, people said, we're not looking forward, but we're ravenous for the trip. They're hungry for it. The, the sense of need, the sense uh, of, I mean, that's really solidarity, right? We want to be there because we love Israel. We want to connect to these people who are suffering so much. Um, you designed the trip in a very interesting way. Uh, t- tell us a little bit about that. We decided we wanted to follow. There's so many communities, as you know, that have been ravaged in Israel. So we decided we wanted to follow one community story uh, for the sake of continuity for the trip, but also for the sake of trying to partner with a, a community here that we now stay in touch with after. So we picked Nero's. Uh, Nero's is the kibbutz that lost 25% of their population either to death or to kidnapping. And uh, it was a very personal connection of very, one of my best friends who lives in Israel, his daughter was in a unit with uh, a woman whose uh, she and her family were murdered, well, five of them, it's a pretty infamous story at this point, oh and God. one of the grandparents. Yeah. So they were asking to help raise money to start rebuilding the community. So we met that way and we said, we don't wanna just raise money, we will. Uh, but we want to make sure that we're in partnership together so that we're actually uh, helping heal here. And also by virtue of healing you, you could help heal us because we don't feel like we could do anything in America right now. There's a certain sense of powerlessness uh, in dealing with this. We will talk much more with Rabbi Mackvertz when we come back in just a moment here on Too Jewish. 
Beit Simcha, the House of Joy, a wonderful Jewish synagogue in northwest Tucson in the Catalina foothills, celebrates a great array of services, classes, and events. Established by passionate, caring congregants and me, Rabbi Sam Kohan, Beit Simcha is a vibrant, vital community that strives every day to serve God with joy. Progressive congregation in northwest Tucson and the foothills, Beit Simcha is open to everyone throughout the metropolitan area, providing weekly Shabbat services, youth and adult education academy courses, social justice opportunities, outreach, and cultural Jewish programming. Join us in person for Shabbat services every Friday night at 6 30 p.m., always followed by an Onik Shabbat, or come on Facebook Live. Go to our website, BeitSimchaTucson.org, B-E-I-T-S-I-M-C-H-A, Tucson.org. We welcome members and guests in person. Call 520-276-5675. That's 520-276-5675. Religious schools available for school-aged children or grandchildren. Join us in our fabulous Hebrew school, Barnbot Mitzvah programs, Torah Tykes experience, confirmation and teen programs, all in a fun, relaxed setting with great Jewish learning. Go to BeitSimchaTucson.org to sign up. Our services, classes, and events are open to everyone. Friday nights at 6.30 p.m., Saturday morning, Torah studies at 9 a.m., and services are at 10 a.m. All of our services are also available on Facebook, on our Facebook page, Beit Simcha Tucson, and classes are all available on Zoom as well. This afternoon for the Super Bowl, come join us at 4 p.m. at 12111 North La Choya for our big Super Bowl Squares party. For more information about Beit Simcha to come to services, our great religious school and Torah Tykes programs, Barnbot Mitzvah, confirmation and high school programs, and fabulous array of adult education academy courses taught live and on Zoom, and all of our services in person and on Facebook, go to BeitSimchaTucson.org, B E I T. S-I-M-C-H-A Tucson.org or call 520-276-5675. That's 520-276-5675. Beit Simcha Tucson.org. Join me, Rabbi Sam Kohan, and the fastest growing Jewish congregation in all of Southern Arizona. If you've got a question, comment, compliment, or criticism, kvetch or kvetch, please email us at 2JewishRadio18 at gmail.com. That's T-O-O, JewishRadio18 at gmail. Or visit our website, 2JewishRadio.com. You can hear all past and present shows through the website. Streaming us from there, downloading us from the Apple iTunes Store is very popular Jewish podcasts. Also available on Podbean. Top 10 in North America, Current Moment Magazine, over 200,000 downloads, and on Spotify, too, now. Post a rating, review to Jewish where you listen to us. Those comments help. We welcome our expert on the international Jewish scene, Tom Price. Good morning, Tom. Good morning, Rabbi. So, Yemen has been very much in the news the last couple of months with Houthis shooting missiles at ships, but um, I, I think what's not well understood among the American Jewish community, the American Jewish world, is how uh, ancient and important the Jewish community of Yemen is and was, even though, of course, there's, I think, almost nobody left there anymore. Um, But many people think that, for example, the most authentic Hebrew 
in the world is that preserved by Yemenite Jews, um, that the way that they read the Torah has its own unique qualities that go back to perhaps the days of the temple. It, it, it's a really interesting community. Absolutely. Um, so let me start by saying that throughout the Arabian Peninsula, of which Yemen occupies essentially the southwest tip, um, throughout the Arabian Peninsula, there were Jewish communities. And at one point in the Middle a- in the Dark Ages, actually, yeah. there was a, a Jewish kingdom on the west coast of Saudi Arabia along the, along the Red Sea. Um, now, of course, I can't remember the name of the kingdom because we didn't really prepare this. But, sorry, sorry, yeah. Um, there was a Jewish kingdom. It was the only independent Jewish kingdom in the world at that time. Um, Israel was occupied by Arabs. and But Yem- Sana'a, the capital Sana'a. of Yena, Yemen, mm-hmm. has a, a very ancient and important Jewish community of which very little is left. Most Yemenite Jews were flown out to Israel in the very early years of statehood, like 50, 51, 52. Yeah, the Operation Magic Carpet, right? Wasn't that the... the or Flying Israeli Carpet. Flying right. Carpet, I think that's right. Um, but they were really treated like the dregs of society in Israel. This was before there was any significant immigration from Ethiopia. And there basically were no very dark-skinned Jews in Israel prior to the arrival of these hundreds of thousands of Yemenites who often settled in purely Yemenite villages, like Rosh Ha'ayin, for example. Um, But they're all over Israel. They're in Jerusalem, and they still are, like, visibly different from most Israelis. They're darker, but they're not African. They have very like fine noses and lips and beautifully sculpted faces. Um, you and I have a common friend here who's of Yemenite descent. We do. And he, yeah. I mean, it's a unique, except for the culture. color of his skin, he could be Irish. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I mean, so, um, but the, the Yemenite, Jews were craftsmen, architects, goldsmiths, jewelers, things like that. And they had a really thriving culture, their own version of Judeo-Arabic, because the language of Yemen is actually Arabic. And as far as today, when, when you say Yemen is in the news a lot, it's not really so much Yemen as these Houthis, who are a group of rebels backed by Iran in the in Iran's eternal struggle of Shia versus Sunni and Iran seeks to extend its influence throughout the Arab world in part to try to achieve more widespread Shia supremacy and these are intra-Arab dynamics that well, Most course, American Jews don't bother to learn about. And of course, the Iranians aren't Arabs at all. They're Persians, you know. Right. It's, it's, so they're, used, they're connecting to right. Shia, Arabs. Islam. I- Islam. Right. It's really complicated. Right. They um, do use the same alphabet. I, I should note that there are many people who think that the, the Yemenite Jewish tradition, that there were Jews in Yemen when the Second Temple was still standing, 
that that Jewish community may have been where the lost uh, Ark of the Covenant ended up. I mean, there's a lot of really interesting theories, and they have their own, you know, they had their own great scholars and teachings and such. I think the name of the of the country you're talking about was Himyar or something like that. Himyar. The Himyaritic Kingdom. Himyaritic Kingdom. There we go. H-I-M-Y-A-R-T-I-C for any of your listeners who might care to look it up. Go look it up. Tom, thanks so much. We'll talk next week. I look forward to it. It's time now for our old Jewish joke of the week. Jewish humor, your Bubby and Zadie knew, brought to you by Too Jewish as a public service. A man calls his mother in Florida. Mom, how are you? Not so good, says the mother. I've been very weak. Son says, why are you so weak? She answers, because I haven't eaten in 36 days. That's terrible, Ma, the guy says. Why haven't you eaten in 36 days? And his mother answers, I didn't want my mouth should be full of food in case you should call. That was the old Jewish joke of the week. Very old this week. A special feature of Two Jewish. Just for you, you should live and be well. And now a word of Torah. In a mitzvah at the heart of Jewish religious experience today, our portion of Truma this week has God command the Israelites, Make me a sanctuary, and I will dwell among you. With this statement, the book of Exodus moves from the practical laws of human interaction to ritual ones. The plans for the creation of a tabernacle in the wilderness, first site of national worship, and the directions for the building of an Ark of the Covenant are explained and detailed. In order to create the new central shrine for prayer, the place where God's presence will actually be, Moses calls on the people of Israel to donate materials from the best of what they have, which comes to be called a truma offering. And a remarkable thing occurs. When the people are asked to donate gifts to build the holy structures needed to worship God, they come forward immediately and give much more than is required. Moses has to ask the Israelites to stop bringing so much gold and silver and so many precious fabrics. This marks the first and only time in history when a temple building campaign brought in more than was required. May it happen again sometime soon perhaps to us at Beit Simcha. In any case, the word for this experience is truma, a free will offering, a gift to God out of the goodness of the heart. This generous free will offering is a powerful thing indeed. When it is constructed, the tabernacle in the wilderness, built from such free generosity, immediately fills with God's presence. When we give freely of ourselves to our temples today, in time, love, care, or money, we seek to recreate that free will offering, the full gift of heart and hand of our ancestors in Moses' time. And when we succeed in doing so, we too bring God's presence and love into our lives. The great Israeli poet Yehuda Amichai wrote beautifully and sensuously on the subject of the synagogue in his final book, Open, closed, open. He wrote, I studied love in the sanctuary of my childhood. I sang, Come, Sabbath Bride, Friday night. 
with a bridegroom's fever. I practiced longing for the days of the Messiah. I conducted yearning drills for the days of yore that would not return. The cantor serenades his love out of the depths. Kaddish is recited over lovers who stay together. The male bird dresses up in a blaze of color, and we dress the rolled-up Torah scrolls in silken petticoats and gowns of embroidered velvet held up by narrow shoulder straps. We kiss them as they are passed around the synagogue, stroking them as they pass, as they pass, as we pass. May we find such love of God and holiness in our own sanctuaries today. When we return in a moment, our guest, Rabbi Matt Verts, shares stories of his own solidarity mission to Israel from his congregation and the direct experience of following an attack community that survived October 7th. Hear from Matt when he rejoins us in a moment on Two Jewish. We continue with our Two Jewish update on news of Jews around the world with commentary. On the first day of his visit to Israel, Argentina's new president, Javier Millet, told Israeli authorities his country will move its embassy to Jerusalem. Millet vowed during his campaign to move the embassy from its current home in Herzliya near Tel Aviv, a sign that Argentina recognizes Jerusalem as Israel's capital now. If carried out, the embassy move will make Argentina the sixth country to relocate its embassy to Jerusalem. Since then, President Donald Trump moved the U.S. Embassy in 2017. Fulfilling a campaign pledge, four countries have followed suit, Papua New Guinea, Kosovo, Honduras, and Guatemala. Israel's foreign minister, Israel Katz, met Millet on the tarmac at Ben-Gurion, where Millet arrived on a commercial El Al flight. Katz applauded Millet's announcement, saying, Thank you, President Millet, for your statement about the transfer of the Argentine embassy in Israel to Jerusalem. Then he added Millet's campaign motto, Viva la libertad carajo, or Long live freedom, damn it. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu applauded the announcement during a meeting with Malay. I'm delighted to welcome you, President Malay, he said, and your delegation to Israel. You're a great friend of the Jewish state. We're delighted with your decision to recognize Jerusalem as Israel's capital and move your diplomatic post here. Netanyahu also spoke with Malay about their country's shared enemy of Iran, which is widely understood to have been responsible for the bombings at the Israeli embassy in the EMEA Jewish Community Center in Buenos Aires that killed more than 100 people back in the 1990s. They spoke about their shared belief in free market capitalism. Malay is a self-described anarcho-capitalist who's moved to slash spending of government spending, that is, in Argentina. This is something we both champion, and you are leading this in Argentina, Netanyahu said. We have led this in Israel. We can do a lot more together. Malay, an avowed philo-Semite who studies with a rabbi, has expressed interest in converting to Judaism, had vowed to visit Israel early in his presidency. He was close to tears when he made his first comments after arriving. It's an honor for me to be here. I'm fulfilling my promise. My first diplomatic visit is to Israel, he said, emphasizing Argentina supports Israel in its current war against Hamas in Gaza. 
Malay was wearing a bring-them-home dog tag necklace. It has become the symbol of the movement to free the roughly 100 living hostages who remain in Gaza. Last week, news came out that at least 30 of the hostages have died at the hands of Hamas. Perhaps another 20 are dead as well. Malay's trip includes a visit to kibbutz near Oz, where dozens of Argentinian nationals were murdered, injured, or abducted October 7th by Hamas Palestinian terrorists. Malay also went to the Kotel, the Western Wall. He was tearful while praying at the holy site. He visited Yad Vashem, Israel's Holocaust Memorial, whose chairman, Dani Dayan, was born in Argentina. Where is the voice of the free world demanding the release of the kidnapped, Malay said. We shouldn't remain silent in the face of modern Nazism today, disguised as the terror group Hamas. Choosing life is fighting terrorism. In other news, Israeli fencer Yuval Freilich won a gold medal at the 2024 Qatar Grand Prix last week, becoming a champion in a country that is home to the leadership of Hamas, living in luxury. Freilich, who's 29, won the Epe title in Doha while wearing a uniform with an Israeli flag and the message Am Yisrael Chai. As in previous times of crisis, that phrase has become a rallying cry for Israel. After Freilich's victory, the Israeli national anthem, Hatikva, was played during the podium ceremony, a rarity in Qatar, a country with no official diplomatic ties to Israel. The win moves Freilich closer to qualifying for the 2024 Paris Olympics. The win in Qatar and waving the Israeli flag in times like these on this unique stage is Israeli pride at its peak, said Gili Lustig, the CEO of Israel's Olympic Committee. Despite the lack of formal relations with Israel, Qatar has become a central interlocutor in ceasefire negotiations between Israel and Hamas because of its unique position, in addition to hosting Hamas's political leadership. And funding the terror group, Qatar is also home to a major U.S. military base. At the 2022 FIFA World Cup, which Qatar hosted, Israeli fans were allowed to attend, although Israeli officials warned them to downplay their Israeli identity. Freilich, who started fencing at five years old, is currently ranked number eight in the world in senior men's individual pay. He won Israel's first European fencing title in the men's individual pay tournament at the 2019 European Fencing Championships in Germany. Born to Australian immigrant parents, Freilich is an observant Jew. In 2008, he sued the Israeli Fencing Association to prevent it from holding competitions on Shabbat, but lost and started competing on Shabbat. In 2011, he won the European Cadet Championship, then he won the Men's AP World Cadet and Junior Fencing Championship the next year. He won the European Men's AP Junior Championships in 2014 and 2015. His gold medal in Qatar is a rare bright spot for Israeli athletes. After the beginning of the war with Hamas on October 7th, Israeli athletes and teams in other international sports competition have faced negative consequences on and off the field due to anti-Israel protests. An Israeli national hockey team, as reported on 2Jewish, was recently temporarily banned from a youth world championship, then was re-invited. Last month in Turkey, an Israeli soccer star was briefly detained for writing a message on his wrist, marking 100 days since October 7th for the hostage captivity. And in South Africa, a Jewish cricket star was stripped of his captaincy of a national team due to fears of anti-Israel demonstrations. And that's the 2Jewish News of Jews round the world.
We welcome back to Two Jewish our, our good friend, Rabbi Mac Vertz, who is a very prominent rabbi in the august state of New Jersey. And, uh, and by the way, uh, has been featured many times on Morning Joe, so he's also a TV star. Um, but th- we're not really talking about media stuff. Um, in the aftermath of the disastrous October 8th attacks, um, uh, Matt brought a solidarity mission of his congregation and, uh, or October 7th attacks rather. Um, and you followed the near O's community. So that meant not only understanding what happened to them that day, but kind of immersing yourself in the experience. What was that like? It was, uh, you know, I, I wish I could give you a complete answer to that question, but I will say that uh, the other 35 and I are still processing it because I'll tell you a little bit about what we saw, but in, in order to see it, you had to put up a defense mechanism because there's no way you can navigate life after hearing the stories and seeing the destruction that we witnessed. So we started with uh, members of families of those who have hostages in Gaza still. Uh, that was the first night here. We woke mm. up the next morning and went right to... And mind you, this is after the first release of hostages around day 50-ish. That's correct. Now it's well over 100 days these people have been... That's correct. So the family we met with, Gaza. the wife came back and the husband is there. Right. And by the way, why did they both end up together? Because they so refused to let go of each other. I mean, in a physical embrace that Hamas, rather than separate them and take the time to separate them, decided to take them together. Just take them both. They, they just couldn't let go of each other. Mm. And now she's here and she's released, but her soul is far from released because her husband's there. Then we went to see where they've been evacuated to. They were in a lot for the first two and a half months. Now they're actually in apartment buildings in a place called Karmegat. Beautiful new apartment buildings uh, south of Tel Aviv, near the beach. You think, wow, food. Great. Exactly. Who knows what those would cost on the open oh, market? Oh, they're, I mean, yeah. they've all been donated. Yeah. But then you meet them and they may be in brand new apartment buildings, but they are utterly traumatized. And here they are bearing witness to us, telling us their stories. And you're like, are you really completely there or not? And they're heroes. I mean, that, that, uh, one guy whose name is Yossi, another guy named Barak, who, who were in, in warfare with Hamas that day. And then would run back to check to make sure their family was still alive. And they were counting bullets to see how many more terrorists they could fight. And then finally, when they ran out of bullets, had to get into their safe houses. And all of them had similar experiences. If they had a lock on their door, a latch, I should say, then Hamas couldn't get into the safe room. Anyone who didn't have a latch in the door... They broke in. Broke in and killed them. And uh, these guys somehow... Just by chance, they decided at one point or another to put latches on their door. And one of them tells this story that I still can't get over. He is with his wife and three kids, probably 10, uh, 12, 10, and 8. And Hamas is saying, we want to come in. We're going to shoot you. They shot through the door. The family stayed on the sides of the door, so they lived. And then Hamas decided to burn the house down. But remember, they're in the safe room. So the concrete. Correct. So it can't burn. But the smoke can come in. So now the house is burning around them and smoke's coming in. They think they're going to die. They have one towel and about 20 tissues, but no water. So what do they do? I, I don't even understand how anyone could think how to be this innovative in the time of crisis. 
The father and the mother say to the kids, let's all pee on the towel. I was thinking that. And on the tissues. I never would have thought of you're, you're more innovative than I am. In I that don't way. know. <laughs> and they take the, the pee-filled towel. And, and stuffed put, it into the cracks around the door to protect themselves from the smoke inhalation. And that saved their lives. Oh, my God. And I said, so when did the army get there? You've heard this over and over again. Not for many hours. Four o'clock. And I said, but how did you go outside? There were terrorists still. He said, unfortunately, there were no terrorists left because they had finished their job, meaning that they had killed and kidnapped everyone they wanted to. They thought that this family was dead, so they left. So they said, and he said this with tears in his eyes, yeah, we got out and there was no, no terrorists there, but the kibbutz had been destroyed. I, I heard stories at a different kibbutz near us where um, Nachalos. Sorry, Nachalos, thank right. you. Where they um, they shot at the door and just flat out luck, a bullet lodged into the lock and they couldn't open the door. And that's why they survived. That's I mean, like the 9-11 stories of the some people, it was election day. They didn't get to the towers because they were voting or it was the first day of school. And they got they were dropping their kids. It got stuck Correct. in traffic and they didn't make it. A yeah. bullet in traffic saves a life. Yeah. A bullet, excuse me, in a lock saves a life. bullet in a lock saved a life. Um, in following these families, I mean, uh, it's an overwhelming experience. You also were connected while you were there with some of the units that were fighting. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, whatever you can tell. Yeah, I know no, some there's, of there's two um, stories that are very painful and also full of resilience. Um, one is one of my best friends in the world is, uh, is, is an Israeli. He was an American originally, like you and, and I are, mm -hmm. uh, but moved here 40 years ago and raised his kids here. And I've uh, gotten to know his, his family well, his kids, and knew his son uh, when he went to the Army as an 18-year-old and has been in uniform since October 8th, but has not been in. Basically, he's been guarding the border up north or down south. He was supposed to get out on February 10th. And he said to me over a Shabbat meal two weeks ago, hey, listen, I want to tell you that I actually feel like I'm not fulfilled. He said, either I want to be at home as a husband and as a father, or I want to be in Gaza. But I don't want to be sitting on a border doing nothing. I'm a toy soldier. And his father comes out in the middle of this conversation and says, son, I want to affirm your need for fulfillment. But I want to let you know, I cannot live in a world that's not with you in it. And the conversation ended. We go on a few days, and Joel calls me, the father, and says, you're not going to believe it, Yaniv's wish has been fulfilled. I mean, what are you talking about? He said the army told them they're not going home, they're going into Gaza. And uh, his meaning as a soldier's being, I'm like, what are you talking about? He said he'll call you in a couple of moments. Yaniv calls me and says, I'm going in. But I don't want to talk about feelings. I want to let you know that we're not, we don't have enough equipment. And uh, we need five drones and 10 helmets and five night scopes. And will you help me? And given that I didn't know where the money was going to come from, but given that I felt so helpless, given that he's the one that's going in to defend us, within 10 hours, I was feverishly emailing everyone I knew in the States that could help. And we raised $100,000 in hours. And now he's going in tomorrow night or two nights from now. And we have made sure that they have the drones, the helmets, the night scopes they need. And, uh, and I pray it's going to be enough to save him and to save his unit. The other one was, uh, the, the most elite uh, unit in the paratroopers called Sayeret. Sayeret Makal or? Uh, no, Sayeret uh, Tsalhanim. Sayeret Tsalhanim. So, uh, we had helped them on my first trip here a few months ago. 
somehow this guy finds me on my solidarity trip, meaning the guide comes and says, the army's picking you up. And I said, what do you mean they're picking us up? <laughs> he says, some guy from the army says that he needs to see you. And I said, I'm not going just with a random guy. And I said, might it be a guy named Itzik? He said, oh, yeah, it's Itzik. Huh? I remembered him from that first trip. Picks me up, but the canter comes with me. And he says, we're going to go to the command center. I don't know what that is. It's the command center in the middle of the desert in a tent with computers and screens that are prosecuting the war from this side of the border, from the Israeli from side. From the Israeli side. Correct. I see the screens. I can go through a lot of stories. But meanwhile, I see two people walking down the street on a screen. And I said, who's that? He says, those are two Hamas terrorists. And he says, watch what happens. They have to confirm the terrorists from the drone, confirm the terrorists from the ground, and then one other third confirmation, which they wouldn't tell me, to make sure they really are terrorists. Then they go through another three-point step, three-point uh, process. I said, what are you doing now? Confirming there are no civilians in the area? Once, twice, three times. And it's all on video so that when they get sued by the international court, they can bring the video as evidence to say that, of course, and so unfortunately, we are killing civilians. It's part of war. But there's no intention ever to do so. And I saw it right in front of my eyes. Meanwhile, to confirm the terrorists, I see a, a, a countdown of 10 through 0. And at 0, the bomb drops and the terrorists are eliminated. And I am just, I cannot believe. So here's the last piece of this. Itzik, who I've just described, yeah. was once in this unit, and now his son is in the unit. His son has been home 48 hours in three months, without showers, without lots of food, and he doesn't have to talk to him. And he says to the soldiers, like, he can't help himself, do you think I could talk to my son? <laughs> because they have secure phones. Yeah. Given that these are all kids themselves, they want to help the father. Of course we will. They start to make it all happen. They're, they're plugging into the computer. Suddenly, all these people jump into the tent. And he says, I'm sorry, you can't talk to your son. A new battle is starting. And he says, of course, Itzik takes us into the car. And he wants to talk about anti-Semitism in America, etc. And he just keeps on drifting off. And I said, Itzik, what's happening? And he says, you don't understand. Like, right now, in this moment, my kid's in a battle. Not... I know he's in Gaza, but right in the second, I know he's shooting and being shot at. And I said, of course, and this goes cycles back and forth. Anti-Semitism in America, he drifts off to his son. And he says, you know, Rabbi, I shouldn't have even tried to call him. The best thing for him and for me not is to, to be not distracted. be in touch. Yeah. Because I don't need distraction and he doesn't need it. And but can you imagine both of us are fathers? Like just, it's no. just unbearable. No, and, and you know, the, it's, a, it's such a highly, not only is it a highly technological war, but, you know, we think about pe of, of soldiers going off far across the sea to fight. It's right next door. And if they come home, even for 24 or 48 hours, you drive there, right? It, they drive there. A couple we, hours. We were probably three miles from where our son was fighting. So imagine the, the longing of the father to see his son, to think about his son, to talk to his son. And, and by the way, when we're there. Uh, you could hear gunfire, you could hear bombs, bombs dropping, and right. you almost, I hate to say this because no one should get used to it, but you do get used to it. Matt, I want to thank you for a great visit here on 2Jewish. Uh, where can people go to find out just more about you in general? Uh, yeah, my, I'm on Facebook, and I'm on Instagram, and I'm on Twitter, and, and also I have... Actually, All the places. I, have a, I actually have a webpage, which I should use more often, that's RabbiMatthewGewords.com. So, uh, but listen... Um, I mean, it's amazing and meaningful that we're here 
uh, in Israel to do what we're doing. And uh, I pray that our next conversation has a different story to it because this is a painful one. Please, God. And thank you for just being so open about everything. Yeah, thanks for having me. When we come back on Two Jewish, we'll hear about next week's guest, get a final musical play out. The stories we share last a lifetime and are passed down from generation to generation, known for our compassionate commitment to the families we serve. Evergreen Mortuary and Cemetery has faithfully served the Tucson community and the Jewish community for over 100 years. We help thousands of families plan and carry out celebrations of loved ones in unique and special ways and assist them in sharing those lifetimes of stories meaningfully. The most beautiful and tranquil final resting place in all of Southern Arizona, Evergreen's tall pines shade peaceful grassy fields. You can count on Evergreen for superior service and the highest degree of integrity. Our informative, well-trained staff is here to assist you with a full range of on-site services. Call Evergreen, 520-888-7470, 520-888-7470. While we serve the whole community, our experience conducting Jewish funerals, Reform, Conservative, and Orthodox is second to none. We have sections dedicated to all religious faiths, can help you arrange for your future needs or your immediate ones. Whether you choose to hold a traditional funeral service or a completely individualized ceremony, either in person or online or both, our goal is to help you create a meaningful, personalized service based upon your unique needs in a place of reflection, tradition, and serenity. Evergreen Mortuary and Cemetery offers the best to the community and to you. Call 520-888-7470. To speak to a family advisor at Evergreen, call 520-888-7470. Thanks for being here with us this morning on Two Jewish with me, Rabbi Sam Kohan. Join us next week. Our guest will be six-time Penn Award-winning author and man of letters, Jay Nugaboran, author of the fascinating new novel, After Camus. Join us at Congregation Beit Simcha every Friday night for services in Oneg Shabbat at 6.30 p.m. Saturday morning, 2. 9 a.m. Torah study, 10 a.m. services, Torah reading in Kiddush, in person, and on our Facebook page. Our play out today for Super Bowl Sunday, a national holiday if ever there was one. We're holding a Super Bowl Squares party for Beit Simcha today at 4 p.m. just because. Anyway, this is from Adar, the musician, not the month we just began in the Hebrew calendar. It's called Halayla. Tonight, my friends, may you have a Shavua Tov, a good Super Bowl Sunday, a good week, a healthy week, and a week we pray profoundly of justice and peace. Sponsored by two Jewish radio programs, Tucson, Arizona.